We're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 8, Chapter 6, Verse Number 20. Hare Krishna. <laughs> First, I want to say good morning to everyone. <laughs> Suprabhatam. It's nice to be here in Mayapur. Everyone I meet, they say, Oh, Haribo, Maharaj, nice to see you. How long are you here for? <laughs> sort of like, Hi, Maharaj, bye, Maharaj. No. So in case someone's curious about how long I'm here for, <laughs> so I don't have to answer the question so many times, I'm here until the 24th of this month. Um, okay. So we're reading, uh, this chapter is called The Demigods and Demons Declare a Truce. And uh, we're hearing a statement from Lord Vishnu, the Supreme Lord. Let's chant. Arayopi hi sandeya. Arayopi hi sandeya. Satikar yartagodave. Satikar Yarta Gaurave Ahimushika Vateva Ahimushika Vateha Deva Yartasya Padavingatai Yartasya Padavingatai Araya, enemies, api, although, he, indeed, sandheya, eligible for a truce, sati, being so, karya artagorave, In the matter of an important duty, ahi snake, mushiga, mouse, vat, like, deva, o demigods, he indeed, artasya of interest, Padavim, position, Gatai, so being. Translation and purport by His Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami, Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai. Translation, O demigods, fulfilling, there's, there's a little bit of echo on this, can we? Okay. O demigods, fulfilling one's own interests is so important that one may even have to make a truce with one's enemies. For the sake of one's self interest, 
One has to act according to the logic of the snake and the mouse. Hmm. Interesting. Lord Vishnu is speaking to the demigods. Purport. A snake and a mouse were once caught in a basket. Now, since the mouse is food for the snake, this was a good opportunity for the snake. However, since both of them were caught in the basket, even if the snake ate the mouse, the snake would not be able to get out, to get out of the basket. Therefore, the snake thought, thought it wise to make a truce with the mouse and ask the mouse to make a hole in the basket so that both of them could get out. The snake's intention was that after the mouse made the hole, the snake would eat the mouse and escape from the basket through the hole. This is called the logic of the snake and the mouse. And so ends Srila Prabhupada's purport to this verse. Arayopi hi sandeya satikaryarta gaurave ahimushikavat deva hyartasya padavingatai. O demigods, fulfilling one's own interests is so important that one may even have to make a truce with one's enemies. For the sake of one's self-interest, one has to act according to the logic of the snake and the mouse. Going back to yesterday's verse, to read it again, the Lord says, As long as you are not flourishing, you should make a truce with the demons and asuras, who are now being favored by time. Speaking to the demigods, uh, the Lord is advising something rather surprising. And so the demigods may have some doubt. And so to uh, address that doubt, we may say the Lord is speaking uh, the verse we've just read with this analogy uh, about mice and snakes, uh, which is the sort of the sort of story that we get in uh, Panchatantra. We may get back to that subject, but I want to first look at the first line of the verse, Arayopihi Sandeya. Arayaha. Arayaha is plural of Ari, and Ari means enemy. So enemies, enemies, although enemies, this is interesting. Although enemies, although enemies, something. So let's think for a moment about enemies. Do we have enemies? Have you ever felt that you have an enemy? Yeah? Yeah? <laughs> 
Oh, the mind. Okay. <laughs> You've anticipated <laughs> something I was going to say. Very good. Very good. You, you've stolen my thunder. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, enemies. But have we experienced the sense of having uh, an enemy other than the mind? Some of us, yes. Some of us, no. Those who say, yes, we might be disqualifying ourselves as sadhus, right? Because what's the qualification of a sadhu? Titikshava karunika surida sarvadehinam, then ajata satravas santa, ajata satru. One whose enemy is not born, one who has no conception of someone being an enemy. That we can take to be quite an exalted position, no? At the same time, we can take it to be a position, a mentality, a way of life, a spirit to aspire for, an ideal to strive toward, which may lead us to then reflect, so how is it I am experiencing this person, that person, this group, uh, this class of people, uh, this uh, nation, as enemy, what do I need to do to overcome that sense? And my thought is, could this be really the deeper uh, issue for Lord Vishnu, who is speaking to the demigods? The Lord, after all, we understand, is always uh, urging uh, the uh, conditioned souls to advance, to uh, progress in spiritual life. But at the same time, in this verse, we have more a sense of the Lord's kind of looking at the demigods and saying, kind of made, making a deep sigh and saying, well, okay, you demigods, you, you are experiencing the world as a place with enemies. So what to do? What to do with you? All right, well, I have an idea. And that's this wonderful idea, which is, after all, uh, part of his grand plan uh, to have a little problem that he has Resolved, And what is that little problem that the Lord has uh, that he wants to engage the demigods and the demons in to resolve? He has an itch on his back that he wants scratched. Yes, that will be explained. It's been ex mentioned in the second canto. It will be explained uh, or mention again in a beautiful prayer uh, toward the end of the 12th canto. So he says, all right, let's get real. Realpolitik. This is German expression. Uh, politics. Um, we, we say in English, politics makes strange 
bedfellows. You know this expression? Yeah, so this verse is about politics. Politics in the Bhagavatam? You guessed it. There's a lot of politics in the Bhagavatam. And some will say, what do you expect? Where there's religion, there's going to be politics. Not in Mayapur, of course. <clears throat> Some will go so far as to say, religion and politics are two sides of the same coin. Welcome to the Hare Krishna movement. Okay. So what is the Lord proposing here? Araya, a pea, although Although they are enemies, they are sandeya. Uh, this comes from the word sandi, and we have also the word sandhya, sandhya, three sandhyas in the course of the day. These are three junctions, uh, according to the movement of the sun. And in grammar, uh, we, we have sandhi. That's a, a technical thing that when you join words together, uh, when they come next to each other, there will be adjustments uh, in uh, the endings of one word and sometimes the uh, beginning of the next word. Uh, it's essentially the word is junction. An example in uh, grammar, we have... Um, Mm. How does the verse go? Niyamagraha. Um, How does that verse start? Atyahara prayasas chaprajalpo niyamagraha. And this is an interesting and I would say relevant example here because uh, when you separate the sandhi, what do you have? You have niyama and which one? Agraha or Agraha. It can be either one. By rules of Sunday, in this particular case, this is one of the simplest of the rules, actually. Uh, it's either Niyama Agraha or Niyama Agraha. And guess what? They mean opposite things. <laughs> and Rupa Goswami says, we shouldn't do it, either one. We should neither be going too far uh, in the way of uh, avoiding regulation, nor should we go too far in embracing regulation for its own sake. The point I want to make here is there is some ambiguity. You know this word ambiguity? Ambiguity means something has meanings which may be more than simply appears on the surface. There may be a, a variety, a range of meanings. It may not be all black and white. It may not be just devas and asuras. Life may not be so simple. 
And this is what the Lord seems to be suggesting here in a wonderful way when he says, in this particular situation, you can join up with them. You can make a junction. Prabhupada translates it as a truce. Eligible for truce. Sandeha. Gerundive form. Uh, it is possible to make a truce, or it can be understood, you should make a truce. Either way can be understood. Now, thinking about enemies, thinking about um, connecting with, in some way, being involved with enemies or with some other brings up, I think, uh, a further way that we can reflect on this. Uh, this, this word other uh, has, has become, um, how to say, in, in modern in modern uh, discourse, sometimes the word will be capitalized, other, uh, to, to be someone's other. And they even have, they've now created a fancy word for it, uh, for otherness. And that is alterity. So if you want to impress your friends, you can speak about alterity. And they'll go, what? Alterity just means otherness. So why am I talking about all, uh, otherness? Because the Bhagavatam talks about otherness a lot. Um, I was thinking about it this morning a little bit. Where do we get otherness in the first canto? Well, how about uh, the story of Ashvatthama? Ashvatthama comes up in the seventh chapter. And there's a problem about Ashvatthama, what to do with him. What does Krishna tell Arjuna to do? Kill him. What does Draupadi tell Arjuna to do? Save him. Save him. Don't kill him. Then what does Krishna tell Arjuna to do? You figure it out. You have to satisfy both of us. And what does Arjuna do? He shaves him. Instead of saving him, he shaves him. <laughs> and that shaving, what is that shaving? First time I read that, I thought, oh, come on. That's, I mean, you know, I shave. I shave every few days. So what's the big deal, you know? But in the case of Ashvatthama, it was a very big deal. It was actually worse than death. Why? Because he was being, by that shaving, he was being socially outcast. And that's similar to what Krishna tells Arjuna in the Gita, that if you lose your reputation, that will be worse than death for you. So in this way, it was worse than death. For Ashvatthama. Well, any case, uh, that's a case of otherness and we can say opposition. And then there's this uh, very interesting resolution, we can say, in what how Arjuna takes care of him. Now, we could go through the whole Bhagavatam. I mean, we could spend a long time on this, but we don't have a lot of time. But you, something you may like to do is think about how 
otherness appears in the Bhagavatam. Uh, and to help you, um, one person has analyzed that there's four kinds of otherness. Uh, okay, so this is not in the Bhagavatam, uh, but bear with me. You might find this uh, interesting and useful. Uh, one kind of otherness is the otherness of the unknown. And we see this a lot in earlier history of, for example, in Europe, there were so many stories that circulated about India in the Middle Ages. No one had ever been, been to, the, to India, or maybe they had, and they came back with so many wild stories about India and Indians. Um, how, how strange they were, how monstrous they were. And then when, the, when the, um, the Christian missionaries came to India and they saw horrible things going on, such as Jagannath Ratayatra, <laughs> they were horrified. They went back. Uh, to the, actually, there was uh, there was one missionary went back to England and reported uh, to British Parliament about how horrible this uh, this this uh, festival was. People were throwing themselves before the carts, being crushed, and they're calling this religion. Therefore, they said, we have to go and save them. And thus, uh, in 1813, uh, the British East India Company had to agree that Christian missionaries could come to India. Prior to that, they were forbidden to come because they didn't want to complicate, they didn't want to mess up their business. Anyway, another story. Uh, <clears throat> So that's one kind of, of, uh, of otherness. Another kind of otherness is the otherness of a class of people within your society. And that class, that the notion of otherness is that um, that other group is, as sociologists will say, marginalized. Now, the marginalized group can be a quite large population. So, for example, in many societies, certainly not in Mayapur, uh, but in many societies, women are marginalized. They are other. Uh, and uh, in the Indian society in general, it can be said, and uh, yeah, in general we can say, and we can say this is also there in the Bhagavatam, whereas at the same time the Bhagavatam is inclusive of uh, tribal societies, Adivasis. Um, and there can be different sorts of societies that are marginalized for various reasons. Another kind of otherness is just the otherness that we all experience every day in our everyday interaction with 
others. Uh, we uh, see ourselves as other than, as different from um, other devotees, other people we meet, uh, and so on. And that otherness may be more or less. Uh, and, and the more can go to the extreme of having the feeling, this person is my enemy. And there's a fourth kind of otherness, and that is the otherness within. Hmm, now it gets spooky. Uh, the otherness within, what, what can be meant by that? Well, one form is sometimes a person may experience, may feel that he or she is possessed. Possessed by some other living being, hmm? a subtle being. Another kind of otherness that we might all feel any time of day or night is uh, we are having some sort of dialogue, so to say, with ourselves. You know, that um, should I do this or should I do that? Well, something in me says I should do this and something in me says, no, you shouldn't, uh, and so on. That sort of back and forth dialogue is there. Multiplicity of identity. It's complicated. Life is not so simple. So we have all of these sorts of, uh, of, of, of otherness, of difference. And the question I want to raise is, how do we as devotees relate to otherness in the broadest sense? And I want to suggest that the ideal that Krishna gives us in the Bhagavad Gita is uh, stated in what's uh, within what is sometimes called the Chatur Shloki. Matchitta, matgata prana, bodhayanta, parasparam. Then, katayantascha, magnityam, tusyanticha, ramanticha. Okay. Now, this verse is generally understood in terms of devotees sharing with devotees, rightly so. What I'm suggesting is, can we extend the boundaries? Can we think of ways to extend the boundaries? What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is, if we're aspiring to be sadhu, Right? Titikshava karunika surida sarva dehinam. Ajata satrava shanta. If we're aspiring, if we're aiming for that, then doesn't that suggest that we need to find ways to extend the boundaries of exchanging in a spirit of equality of some sort? Bodhayanta parasparam, each other. They enliven each other. But how do these ideal persons, devotees, how do they do that? What's the preliminary qualification, you may say? First of all, machitta, matgata prana. They have dedicated their prana. Their prana has gone to the Lord. 
it sounds like a, a it's a done deal, right? Gone. Gata means gone. They've already surrendered. The surrender is finished. But can we also consider it as a process? And thinking of it as a process that I am working toward surrender. I am endeavoring and others are endeavoring towards surrender. Can I consider myself in that context relating with others with whom I might otherwise not be so inclined to relate in any other way than to say, take a book or you have to surrender or a sort of, rather than a dialogue, a monologue. Ours is a preaching movement. We often hear, and this is certainly the case, and Srila Prabhupada spoke again and again about propagating uh, Krishna consciousness. But he also spoke about working together in one conversation um, in Australia, I think it was in Melbourne, he was speaking with uh, one f follower of Christian tradition. I believe he was a, mi a minister. And a uh, very interesting conversation. And toward the end of the conversation, he says, um, so let us work together uh, to... Uh, to reawaken God consciousness. He says, God consciousness has declined. That is the general problem. And so, let us work together uh, uh, to, uh, to raise God consciousness. He says like this. So what I want to suggest is that uh, in the Bhagavatam, there are hints at how we might do this. How we might... I was thinking also about the demigods and the demons. How come they're always just fighting? Can't they just sit down and talk with each other sometime? You know? I mean, couldn't they say, look, let's, uh, let's see if we find some common ground. They never seem to do that, but in this case... Um, they're getting help from the Lord. And the Lord says, okay, you, you guys don't know how to talk to each other. Well, we're going to get you working together in any case. Uh, because I know something that you're both very interested in. And what is that? The nectar. Yes, the amrita. But all right, you're not going to want the, those others to have any of the nectar. Anyway, don't worry, uh, because, um, you know, we'll, we'll work it out. It's going to be in your favor. Actually, Vishwanath Chagravarti Thakur, in his commentary to this verse, he says uh, that actually Vishnu is saying, um, we, you, you work together with the demons, and then like the snake, afterwards, you can kill them. <laughs> but my point is, there's uh, the Lord helping to work with 
those others. He's uh, his, his making a grand arrangement, and I must say it's an incredibly, um, as well as being a cosmic arrangement, you know, uh, as will be described in coming verses and chapters, it's also a very comic arrangement. Just think about it. Here you have the Supreme Personality of Godhead appearing as a tortoise. And as a tortoise, what is he doing? He's taking a very humble position of having this mountain, which is going to be the pivot. Uh, he's the pivot for this churning rod of the mountain. And so on. And there's so many uh, aspects uh, of, of the whole story that are really very, uh, very comical. But it, in one sense, it comes to a certain point of conclusion when Rahu sneaks in uh, to capture some of the nectar for himself. And so what does this whole story give us? Uh, the Bhagavatam functions in many ways, and one of the ways it functions is, uh, as in this case, it gives what's called an etiological account. Etiology. An etiological story is a story which tells you why it is that something is the way it is, especially in nature. So, in case you ever were wondering, why are there eclipses? You probably thought that when you were young, but then later on in life we start to think, yeah, I know, I know this and that, and I know so many things. But that curiosity kind of disappears. But one time you thought, why are there eclipses? Well, the answer is very simple. It's because... Um, this demon uh, worked his way in between the sun and the moon, and he caught some of that nectar. Rahu. Perfect explanation. It's all there in the Bhagavatam. All right, so, but then we have another issue, and there's no time to go into this, but just to raise it. What is going on here? Is the Lord authorizing or to what extent is he authorizing? How his, or is it indeed that he is arranging? It seems like he's arranging uh, uh, to do something, um, to arrange a kind of treachery. Now, treachery is a very strong word. Uh, but I'm saying that because it's good to start with, you know, the worst case scenario and then work back from there. Um, but what I, what I want to say is that um, we have here a suggestion by the Lord. If we look at at least how Srila Prabhupada has translated the verse, it's not a command. The Lord is not from on high commanding. Uh, I'll read the verse again. O demigods, fulfilling one's own interests is so important that one may even have to make a truce with one's enemies. For the sake of one's self-interest, one has to act according to the logic of the snake and the mouse. So Krishna, the Lord, seems to be 
authorizing. So you can go ahead and do this. There, you have a very important thing to accomplish. So because you have something important, you can do this. We might take this incidentally as a case of what's called apad dharma. You know apad dharma? There's dharma, so many rules. There's also apad dharma. Apad dharma means when there's an emergency, the rules can be adjusted because there's an emergency. Kshatriyas normally have to act in such and such a way, brahmanas in such, but sometimes a brahmana can act as a kshatriya and so on. So sometimes uh, the demigods can work with the demons. Uh, so the, the question here to me, uh, and you may say, well, that's, that's not, you may shoot it down. You're welcome to shoot it down. Um, but I'm, I'm working on, on a kind of uh, theory. Before I ex mention that, though, I want to explain another uh, theory of ethics, and that is what's called divine command ethics. Divine command ethics comes out of the uh, Abrahamic tradition, and the basic idea is God commands. And because God commands, we can understand that what he commands is good. So we have no problem understanding what is good. Why? Because it's commanded by God. But now here's a problem. And this is called the uh, Euthyphro uh, dilemma. The problem is, is it good because the Lord commands it? Or is it that the Lord commands because it's good? Huh? So this divine command ethics gets you into a kind of a tangle, a problem. So here's my proposal. Vaishnav understanding is it's not about God's command. Sometimes God will command. Sometimes Krishna will say to Arjuna, stand up and fight. But then what does he say at the end of the Gita? What does he tell Krishna? He says, do what you want. He says, you're a fool if you don't do what I say. But still, he gives him a choice. So it seems to me, and please shoot me down if you like, uh, is what we have here is divine preference ethics. The Lord reveals, through the Vaishnavas especially, what the Lord wants. And then the devotees, because of love, out of love for the Lord, wanting to please the Lord, will do what pleases the Lord. And so it's not about command. Command may be there on a lower level, but uh, the real thing is uh, understanding what is the Lord's preference. Okay, those are a few thoughts. I'll, uh, I'll leave it at that unless um, there are no questions, in which case I'll share something further with you, but maybe there's a comment or a question at this point. Yes, we have a young question. 
Oh, very good question. He said, how come is it that religion and politics are two sides of the same coin? Do you have any thoughts on that, why it might be? Not at all? No idea. <clears throat> Think for a moment about the analogy. What is a coin? <laughs> okay, it's a round metal. Why is a coin interesting? They both want the money. Okay. Huh? You can get things with it. It has two sides. It has two sides. Filled desires. Huh? Power. Okay, we're getting closer. Wow, I, I would have never thought of that. <laughs> One side refers to the value of the coin, and the other side refers to the nation of the coin. Is that what you said? Wow, I have to think about that one. Okay. Well, you mentioned the word value, so here's the point I want to make. Both sides, politics and religion, are concerned with value. But they both have very different understandings of where value, they have different understandings of where value is, has its locus. One has the idea, uh, politics has the idea that value and therefore power has its locus in, in people. And religion has the idea that value and power have their locus in the Lord. Now, because religion manifests in the world, right? And what's going on in the world? Well, a lot of things go on. And you can say one of the things that goes on is politics. And so, uh, because religion is about winning hearts of people, and politics is about winning, what is it? Winning hearts? Winning egos. <laughs> so there's, there's, there's a tension there. But also, there can be often they will be complementary. And if you look at the Bhagavatam, just keeping this in mind, you'll see it's all religion and politics. I mean, what's going on? Krishna's whole, the whole time of Krishna's pastimes, it's all politics. Krishna is going around the Bhagavad Gita. Why is the Bhagavad Gita spoken? Because there's politics. So if you start looking with this thought in mind, you'll start seeing politics everywhere. And this could get you depressed. So I don't want to get you depressed. So I hope the next comment will be about something less depressing. Or question. <laughs> 
Yes. Do we have a second microphone with us today? No, not today. Yeah. <laughs> Hare Krishna. The, the question may arise, you brought it up, is the Lord authorizing or arranging to do treachery? Ah. And you mentioned it's good to start with the worst and work backwards. Why is that? Oh, Hare Krishna. I think that's a second lecture. <laughs> Uh, what I wanted to say there was we have in our traditions of um, debate, we have the notion of purva-paksha and then siddhanta. So you start with the purva-paksha and you, you uh, this is standard in uh, the commentarial um, practice, is if you look at Vedanta Sutra commentary, they'll state the Purvapaksha first. And say, so this is what some people say. And they're always very polite. They never give the name of who they're criticizing. Um, but it's usually obvious. <laughs> and so, okay, this is what they say. And this is why this is wrong. And then they will... Uh, unpack and deconstruct uh, the argument that's uh, whatever it might be. So you're working, you have to, you have to start with that, you know, misunderstanding in order to get to the, to the correct understanding. So our correct understanding in the Bhagavatam is, is uh, the Lord is engaged in uh, eternal pastimes of loving exchanges with his devotees um, in wonderful ways. And, um, and he's also entertaining himself, <laughs> uh, especially in this world. When he comes to this world, uh, it, he doesn't want to have a boring time. He wants to have an interesting time. And so, um, in any drama, unless there's some conflict, you don't have a drama. If everybody's just, you know, just yes, yes, and all is well, and hunky-dory, and I'm okay, you're okay, that's, that's no fun. Does that mean in Vaikuntha there's no fun? What do you think? There's so much fun, but there's no conflict. Difference of opinion. Krishna has some friends in Vrindavan. He has different types of friends. Did you know he has some friends? that um, like to argue with each other. And Krishna enjoys their argumenting. They're arguing. Isn't that cool? What a wonderful, what a wonderful Lord. Does that sort of... What do they argue about? 
What do they argue about? They argue about how many frogs they can leapfrog over. I don't know what they argue about. <laughs> yes, Maras. Ah, there is a microphone. It's been hiding. Yeah, that's the microphone moving music. Thank you, Maharaj. Uh, just a simple question. Could you please uh, state one more time uh, what are the four types of alterities or mm -hmm. otherness? Oh. As okay, the four types of alterity. We're going to be discussing this in the seminar we're going to be having starting on the 17th for five days, uh, this uh, module uh, called Dialogical Vaishnavism. That's why I've been thinking about uh, that subject. So other otherness, alterity, there's the otherness of the unknown. And one manifestation of that we see in modern life is um, all these efforts to find life on other planets. That's another subject, but yeah. Um, people who are unknown, you simply don't know anything about them. Then you start to manufacture uh, ideas about them. Then there are the others who are part of and yet separate or somehow marginalized within uh, your own society, and that can be on different scales. It can be, you know, um, within a small community, or it can be within a, a whole country. And then there's the the otherness that we we all go through day to day life with, uh, experiencing each other in our uh, variety, which is. Um, you know, we always hope for it to be very nice, and we we enjoy this variety, but some aspects of the variety sometimes we don't enjoy. Um, some otherness we we find problematic, uh, we find fault with, or whatever. And then the last is the kind of inner otherness. Um, you know. Uh, yeah, Sigmund Freud made a whole a whole um, industry out of <laughs> the otherness within. You know, thinking about what's going on in in one's dream dream life and so on and so forth. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes, we have a fifth other. <laughs> but that fifth other, who is that fifth other? Krishna. But is Krishna entirely other? No. He is the other within who, who is with whom we have the most 
uh, intimate relationship of all. Yes, indeed. Thank you. That's a good point. Yes. Actually, I didn't exactly say that, but okay. <laughs> yes. So, how are they going to satisfy Krishna if they're not okay? So sometimes when we speak about the process of Krishna consciousness, we speak in more broad terms and sometimes we speak in more narrow terms. Sometimes rules, we read about rules uh, which say, you know, do such and such or you go to hell. Uh, then we read another rule, uh, which is the opposite. You simply circumambulate Tulsi and um, all your sins are, are destroyed, including, this is the one that always amazed me, including Brahmahatya. Um, so, but wider and narrower. And when we are, as devotees, trying to understand, all right, I want to progress in spiritual life, how do I do it consequentially? Then uh, Shastra tells us the only way you're going to do this is by taking shelter of Guru. At that point, that's where we understand, okay, now, now it gets serious. <laughs> but we should always remember who is, who is Adi Guru? Right? Adi Guru, Krishna, or we can say the expansion, Balaram, or on the other side, Shimati Radharani, um, and so on. And are they not in any way acting in the hearts of all living entities? Are they completely, is there no access by anyone other than? Um, you know, all of us who are, let's say, explicitly practicing uh, and intentionally and consciously practicing Krishna consciousness, I think we should um, be cautious about that. Why? Because the danger, here's the danger, the danger is that we become arrogant. The danger is we become overconfident. The danger is we think, I'm on that straight and narrow path and nobody else is and therefore uh, there's no hope for them unless I bestow mercy upon them, um, you know. And then we forget where the mercy is coming from. There are a lot of prob problems can arise from that individually and also collectively. Uh, what is the perception of the Christian consciousness movements by persons who uh, are uh, 
not part of the Krishna consciousness or don't see themselves as part of the Krishna consciousness movement. What is that perception? Perhaps, uh, and I, I'm running the danger of overgeneralizing, but the danger is there uh, that some say, oh, these people, they think they know it all. Um, I remember, and I was rather surprised, and I have to say a bit dismayed years ago, uh, the BBT printed uh, a pullover, like this style, a hoodie, and on the back it said, uh, in big letters, um, something like, what is the aim of life? Ask me. Now, the positive side of that, I understand, it's very nice. You know, if somebody would actually feel like, oh, Gosh, maybe I should ask him. But if you look at that message from another side, from another perspective, it can look a bit arrogant. And I don't know, you know, how you could estimate how many people were attracted to that uh, message and how many were repelled by the message. But I suspect a rather high number of people, unfortunately, uh, would have been repelled by it. That's just the reality. So I think this is a challenge. Yes. Is that... Uh, yes, Manaji. I think we'll have to make this the last microphone. I was listening to a Prabhupada memory yesterday and uh, it was in, set in the early days. Actually, it might have been Lilamrita 3. I get confused where I hear read all these things because I'm reading multiple things at the yeah, same yeah. time. But anyway, uh, it was in the early days and um, they were talking about, with Srila Prabhupada, they were talking about when perhaps, uh, you know, we would get into, Krishna conscious devotees would get into politics and then basically Krishna consciousness would more or less take over the country. Yeah, yeah. In 18 days, preferably. Yeah. <laughs> and then one devotee said, and yes, Srila Prabhupada, then we'll be able to get rid of all these nonsense religions, other, other religions, all these nonsense religions. And Prabhupada said, what nonsense religions? Ah. We just want them to be able to practice their religion perfectly. Very nice. Thank you. That's... Uh, she's re referring to a comment Prabhupada made when devotees were discussing about getting into politics and then becoming successful in politics and then uh, uh, a devotee mentioned, and then we can get rid of all these nonsense religions. And Prabhupada said, what nonsense religions? Uh, and then he said, what nonsense religions? And he, and he said, we just want them to practice their religion perfectly. We just want them to practice their religion perfectly. Nice. I think we'll have to stop there. Thank you so much. Grantaraj Srimad Bhagavatam ki jai. Srila Prabhupada ki jai. Gaur Premanande Hare Krishna.